only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Very honored today for the Pro Football Doc podcast to have a special guest and friend and coach, uh, head coach Norv Turner. And actually, I thought of you uh, because this is the day after Father's Day and had a nice Father's Day weekend. And with your son, Scott, coaching in the league and otherwise, and of course, Drew's in town here, I was like, oh, I got to reach out to Coach and have him come on. So thank you for joining us on the Pro Football Doc Podcast. No, it's, it's great to be with you. And we have been friends for a long time. Uh, that makes this extremely easy. And we had a great Father's Day. Uh, Scott and Drew and my son-in-law, we all went to the U.S. Open Sunday, and it was amazing. Uh, we were on the 15th green when Rom lipped out, and then oh. and then he birdied 17 and 18 in just incredible fashion. So uh, across the weekend, with Scott in town, uh, how much football did you talk? Over under five minutes. Uh, I, well, it was over. Five over. Minutes. You did still <laughs> talk a lot of football. You can't help it. But, it's but, you know, I was back there for a couple of weeks. I actually went to three or four of their practices, and uh, I have uh, access to some some of the practice tape and all that stuff. So we we spend a lot of time talking ball. So we didn't do it much here. You know, it's it's uh, it's fun having him involved, and obviously my friendship with Ron Rivera and the group of guys on that staff. So I kind of feel like I'm a distant member of that group. Uh, I keep in touch with all of them. Uh, so obviously, for those who don't know, Scott's the OC for the Washington football team with Ron Rivera. And obviously, that relationship has been close for a long time, including starting in San Diego, right? Ron was here. Yeah, you know, we uh, people forget about that. But uh, Ron had gotten let go by uh, Lovey Smith in Chicago. And, and when I got the job in San Diego, I had known Ron a long time and I had never worked with him, but certainly were friends. And we had the opportunity to hire him and, uh, you know, he ends up later becoming our defensive coordinator and that, that catapulted him into the head coaching job in Carolina. And he's just, he's done a great job. Yeah. So uh, do you miss football now or no? Uh, you know, I, I, I thought I did. And I was out back there in uh, DC for a couple of weeks. I went to, I think four practices and I said, you know what? I don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm 69 years old and, and your body, uh, it takes a toll. And, uh, you know, I love, I love the game. I love the interaction with the coaches and players, but, uh, as you know, it's a grind and it's, a it's, it's a grind. It's, it, you it, got to totally commit to it. Yeah. And, and 
let me ask you this question. I think things have changed too in terms of the way football is done. As a head coach, look, you've been everything, right? Obviously, Super Bowls, offensive coordinator, head coach, multiple places. Today, as a head coach, what percentage of your time is as, for lack of a better word, CEO or organizational versus PR versus X's and O's? Yeah, you, or staff you, management. You, I guess you have to. One. I mean, it starts to me as head coach with staff management, and you have to. You have to have a, a great staff. And I was. I've always been lucky. I felt I had good coaches uh, wherever I've been, and uh, I think in most cases we got the most out of the players. Uh, you know that we we had. Uh, but the the hardest thing now, I think, for being a head coach is there's just too many people who want to have their input there's uh you know owner uh, general managers assistant gms or now they have the personnel people under it and everyone uh wants to get their fingers in it and and we all know that too many cooks uh it just doesn't work out so i i think it's a, a ch more challenging job uh to be a head coach in the league now than it was in the past and then i think you'll see the head coaches with the most autonomy, uh, the, the Pete Carroll's, uh, obviously Belichick, uh, Harbaugh in Baltimore, I can go on, name five or six more. They're the ones that consistently uh, have the most success because there is one direction, there's one voice, and it really comes down to the players know who they're answering to. And I, I think that ha has a lot to do with the better teams in this league. Yeah, and you know, and, and famously, New England has always had the smallest coaching staff, right? Smaller, even they take it to, to new levels, smaller, uh, tighter quarters. Uh, so along that line, would you, any regrets? Would you do anything differently? I, always, I, I think there's always things uh, that you look at you would do differently. But from a, from a big picture scheme, I think I trained under the best, uh, John Robinson, I worked for him for 16 years. Uh, he was a unbelievably successful head coach uh, in college and in the NFL. Uh, he doesn't get credit he deserves. Uh, we were in the same division with the 49ers with Montana, Bill Walsh and Eddie DiBartolo and their budget was, their, their payroll was about twice what ours was at the Rams. And in the seven years I was there, we won the division twice we went to the championship game twice. Uh, unfortunately, played the 85 Chicago Bears and the 89 49ers in the championship game. Those are two tough teams to beat. But he was a great mentor to me. And then uh, obviously getting to coach with Jimmy Johnson, coach for Jimmy Johnson. Uh, you know, I think I learned how, how you go about doing things. Uh, there's always little things you you do differently. But from a big picture, no, I, I think we had the right approach. So what are the little things you might do differently nowadays versus before or things that you would change? Well, the, the biggest thing I think is, uh, you know, when you go into a place, you just got to make, when you go into a place, you got to make sure that uh, people that are doing the personnel, selecting players, uh, signing free agents, uh, making decisions on your own free agents, who you're going to keep, who you're going to let go, that everyone's on the same page. 
And as I said that, you know, there's one voice and one man set in the direction and everyone responds to it. You know, it's uh, the, the, frust the frustrating things and, and, you know, you don't want to, I'd never ever want someone to think you're making excuses, but you know, when during my period over a three year uh, period of time, we let uh, Darren Sproles leave, we let Mr. Jackson leave, we let, uh, uh, Tolbert, Michael Tolbert, Lee, those guys were touchdown makers. Uh, they all at, at different times in a, in a season scored over 10 touchdowns. And uh, you have to keep your best players. Uh, you know, you have to make tough decisions, but you do have to keep your best players. And that's just a general response to what you're saying. Uh, keeping, the, keeping the right players and, and making those kind of decisions is critical. Well, I mean, I was lucky enough to be a fly in the wall a little bit. As you know, in the draft room, there was the adult table, the big 10 person yeah. dining room table where you and the GM and assistant GM and ownership was at. And there was the head trainer and I at the kids table in the corner. And I remember to uh, when you're in that draft and I'm not gonna name names or anything, you mentioned it, but I remember you were saying, that kid is not Darren Sproles. We cannot, you know, you're not substituting is not equal. Darren is, is special. And, uh, you know, what's funny is uh, I still communicate with Darren and, and I think on a podcast here, we even talked about it and, and, I don't think Darren knew how much you were in his corner ever. You know, well, he, I mean, I said, look, I was in the draft room when he said, no, no, this kid is not going to be Darren Sproles. I was special. on the, I was on the phone with Darren, with Darren, and, and he, he wanted to stay, and we're trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get our guys and convince them that hey, this guy's important to mm -hmm. us. He's important to our quarterback. There was a feeling that he probably didn't have much time left. He played 10 more years. You know, it's, it's one of those things that's unfortunate, uh, but those things you have to get right. Yeah, no, 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 no question. So you've been through it all. You've been uh, everything in football with all these different teams. Um, what do you think your legacy is? The, the one thing I take a lot of pride in, and uh, I got, speaking of Father's Day, I got texts from three or four young coaches uh, wishing me a happy Father's Day and thanking me for giving them an opportunity to uh, start their career and have a career. And, and like I said, what people did for me, uh, teach you how to coach, how to, how to become a pro. Uh, I tried to do that with coaches and I certainly try to do that with players. Uh, you know, I think the development of young players, I think that's something I take a lot of pride in that we've done uh, a guy like Darren Sproles, uh, I like Philip Rivers, uh, you know, go back through my entire uh, career. Uh, Alex Smith, 20 years ago, I mm -hmm. coached in his second year, and we can go on and on and on. I think uh, it, it makes me feel good that those guys uh, are appreciative, and when you see them or when you have contact with them, uh, they reach out to you and, and say, hey, uh, uh, Trent Green, thanks for, you know, the things you were able to give me and, and help me to become a, a better player, a, a pro. In the end, about the people, right? That's I, I no, no that. question. And and you know, it's it gets lost uh, because when, when you take over, in terms of record, when you take over a team that's three and thirteen, there's a process that's going to be involved. I did that in Washington. I did in the Raiders. So uh, there's more losses on the record than I'd like to have there. But you know, when we came into San Diego, we won the division three years in a row. We 
uh, went to the championship game and, and, and coached that game with a bunch of injured players. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so you know he's looking at me there. <laughs> wait, well, it wasn't your doing. You kept, you kept them upright and on the field. That's what's amazing. Uh, you know, we had we had Gates playing with a bad foot and Philip with a with a knee surgery on Monday and and all those things. But we won a lot of games, and I'm proud of what we did in San Diego. Uh, you know, there's a couple of games I I wish would have turned out differently, but uh, that's that's part of the sport. You see that with everyone. One thing I find it amazing. You live in San Diego. You live in Del Mar, and arguably, you're by by regular season record, you're the most successful San Diego Chargers head coach ever. I mean, and there's a lot of good names from Sid Gilman to Bobby Ross and Marty and others. But for some reason, does it bother you that like people for some reason don't say Norm was like? A, if if you ask the average fan on the street, I don't know that your name comes up as the best head coaches. I I thought you did a great job, but. Well, it's, uh, you know, that when the expectation is what it was when I got here and the way everything went down when I got here, I understand that uh, people are going to have different opinions. I know uh, going into year four or five, they did a statistical breakdown and uh, uh, with Philip and with Gates and with Vincent and the crew we had, uh, we actually had more yards, more touchdowns, all those things than uh, Eric Correale did in that same time frame. So we did a lot of good things and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, it doesn't matter to me right now. You know, we, we, I love coaching here. Uh, I love the interaction with our players and we kind of, you know, had a, a group that closed in and, and put all the negativity outside there out of our minds and, and just went and played football. And, and I think our guys did a lot of good things. Well, one of the things that, uh, okay. I don't know if you know this. This is just my thought, and we're friends enough. I, I can oh, just sure. say whatever. Here's what I was told: people have always said. People, for example, look. Everyone loves Marty. Loved Marty, right? And he's an English major, and he commanded that press conference and, yeah. and whatever. One of the things that I think I want to tell people from the inside about you that I observe all these different coaches: the players in the locker room love Norv. The Norv fired up players and did all the things the head coach that I, like I wasn't in on every meeting. Everything a head coach is supposed to do with a lot of personality and fun. And and I think that's the side that I wish you would have let out more. Like in, in the public. And like your Norv is one of the funnier guys I have ever <laughs> met. Yet he didn't, you didn't show it publicly. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, I probably, it's the way I was brought up and I was a little bit more old school. And I, I was taught at a young age in coaching and, and particularly when I got to the NFL, I was taught this by players and coaches uh, that that locker room and that group, it was really, really a special group. And it was something that you wanted to, be exclusive. You wanted to be your thing. It didn't have to, you don't have to entertain everybody on the outside. You don't have to have the, the what you're saying, the great press conference or whatever. You know, it was about that, that closeness, that tight knit group you had. And I think it made everyone appreciate it more. And, and, you know, I used to tell the guys, Hey, 
you know, this is, this is our deal. And you know, we don't need outsiders in here. This is our deal and let's make it our deal and let's make it the best we can. You weren't trying to win the polls. Uh, no, no, I've never really worried about that. And it's, uh, the polls end up being real fickle. You know, you, well, you, uh, can, uh, you, uh, you can sway them every way you want. Right. And then uh, you... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll share a fun story. I don't think you'll mind. Um, so coach, you know, he commands the room. He's got authority, but he's got his jokester side. So we used to kid around here and there, some fun stuff, of course, getting work done. And so I don't forget what year it was, but you had an emergency appendectomy and no one really knew about it. And yet you coached that Sunday and we got you the emergency appendectomy on a Friday, coached that Sunday and kept coaching and no one really even knew about it. So we do that and a couple weeks later, you're sitting in the head athletic trainer's room. I still remember this. You probably don't remember this story. And you go, come here, Doc. I wanna talk to you. And <laughs> I know that Nord look and I start a little smirk in my face. And you literally said to me, wipe that smile off your face, I'm serious. Okay, so just he and I, we go in the room and he says, and you said to me, I've got a bone to pick with you. He goes, and you said to me, if you would have let my appendix burst, we still would have lost these last three games. <laughs> and everyone would think I'm a genius and liked. Instead, you saved me. And now everyone thinks I'm a horse's ass because yeah. we lost the last yeah. three games. Then I'm mad at you. Yeah. You remember that conversation? I do. <laughs> I do. And that was early in the year. We actually ended up having a really good season that year. But uh, uh, I remember the conversation. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about uh, the season's long, and and if you lose a couple games in your, you know, and you let it affect you going into the next week, uh, it can it can really be bad. And I think uh, you know, particularly early for the most part, when we had adversity, our guys, uh, you know, overcame it. Well, that's my little anecdote. That wasn't the only one. There's a lot yeah. of those, and that happened throughout the locker room. And I guess my point is, and I've always said this on Pro Football Doc and everything. If something doesn't make sense from the outside, it's just because those on the outside don't have all the facts and factors. Like the locker room was very united and united behind you because you corralled everybody, but the public perception was, well, he didn't give us give us a good press conference and he yeah. didn't, you know, give that fiery post-game or speech or uh, what have you. Meanwhile, in-house, everyone was, it was a different story. And, well, uh, well, the one thing about the locker room and, and people when, you know, that, that term, someone say a player's coach or they liked him and then someone's going to meet, they say, well, they liked him because he wasn't hard on him or he didn't demand. The one thing I found out the players, they respect you and they like you and they perform for you if they believe you can help them be better. And I can go through a total list, whether it be a Jeremy Clary, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the guys on defense uh, that we felt, you know, we were getting the most out of with coach. They were able to have careers. And that's the one thing I always talk to, to players about, you know, we want to win. We want to go to the playoffs. We want to win a Super Bowl. But individually, you want to have a career. And you look around at the guys that play eight, 10, 12 years, they treat this as a business. They come to work every day. They're professionals. They have an approach with what they do. And that's something that we always coached and stressed uh, because, uh, you know, these young guys, uh, they got a chance to have a career, they get, make so much money now, 
they can set themselves up for life and, and have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. All right. I won't keep you too long here. So final question for you. What happened to that restaurant that you already had a name for? Yeah. <laughs> well, we know that. Don't you tell that story. We know the inf infamous play uh, against Baltimore, 4th and 29. Un unfortunately, they've been showing it on some websites over the last year. Uh, Baltimore checked the ball down and, and uh, converted a 4th and 29. And they that play put them in the playoffs. And actually, uh, that's the year they uh, won the Super Bowl, I believe. But but I used to tease the guys, yeah, these fourth and 29s, I'm open a restaurant in Del Mar and call it fourth and 29. And because and, <laughs> you can say, uh, well, <laughs> he's a, because that's the play that fill in the blank got him fired. Yeah. <laughs> the defensive play, whether, whether it was clipping on, on block oh, the back, it, it clearly it was, was clipping. He didn't make the first down and, and it's incredible because there's about five players that took the worst angles you've ever seen on, on a single football play. Uh, obviously it was a great run uh, by Rice, but it was, uh, it was a poorly <laughs> officiated play. So for years, Norv has, joked and said outwardly that he's got the name of the restaurant it's called fourth and 29 so yeah. if you ever see that that's the well i'm not going to get in the restaurant business and thank goodness in Delmar, they the building i used to say we're going to put it in has a nice restaurant in it and uh people enjoy going there so it's it's out of my hands now all right coach uh thanks for coming in appreciate the time here always, always. I, I appreciate everything you did for our guys. And, uh, you know, I think of the, the guys who you took care of, I think of Philip and then the guys who took care of themselves, uh, you know, everyone wants to say, you know, the surgery taking, taking care of a guy is, you know, it's all in the surgeon's hands. Once, once the, the procedure's done, it all comes down to the player and how committed he is to rehabbing and doing the things he has to do, uh, to perform and Philip Rivers is, is the oh, best yeah. example you could ever have because he was, he was operated in mid January and was ready for mini camp in May and, you know, had an extensive surgery that, that, that we all know what it was and no one's ever worked harder to rehab than Philip. And then it, it, he took it another step and he changed his entire body. And uh, that's why he played another 12 years or 15 years. Well, after the that. players were saying, Philip, you're faster now than before the surgery. I tried to take credit. No, it was his workout regimen and, and things. But I would say this coach, a good outcome. Look, in, in order to make a field goal, you need the snap, the hold and the kick. Of course, the blocking too. To me, the snap is the injury. Because some, if it's a really bad snap, you might not be yeah. able to do anything. The hold is the surgery, and the kick is the rehab, and you got to do all three in order to 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 make the kick. All all any one of those three that's out of whack, and you're not going to make. It. Yeah, but the one the one thing I'll always say is, uh, you know, with with what you did, the guys who did what they were asked to do after the surgery. Uh, performed and, and uh, continued their, as I said, continued their careers and, and ended up having successful careers. And, and that's what you want uh, from a medical standpoint. Well, one final thing before we go. Um, one of the things that I regret about my time in the NFL, besides not winning a ring when we were supposed yeah. to, I have to credit you a little bit. So what I've been doing now, pro football doc, I've been looking at injuries from the outside, right? Before I would see a guy on the player, 
on the field, on the sideline, in the locker room, Monday after an MRI, and then go look at film. Now I look at film and I don't have the answer, but like, it's like playing Jeopardy. But one of the things when I was in the NFL, I was concentrating on the 53 trees in my backyard, so to speak. I didn't know what was going on in the forest. And you said something to me that started the seed. And I've tried to do this now with Pro Football Doc. One time, you, people have always asked me, do you ever get into analyzing other teams when I was in the NFL? I said, not really. That was my job. But one time, remember, you asked about Dante Culpepper when he was with the Dolphins after an appendectomy. Is this guy going to play this week? I'm like, no. But that actually has now spawned me for years now. Like injury analytics in yeah. terms of what a guy can or cannot do in a certain game not season-long tendencies but in this game because of the right knee mcl or what have you and that's an idea that i continue to work on and really kind of spawn from your Dante well we would talk i mean when we get the injury report you know i either talk to james, james collins yes. or trainer or talk to you and here, here this guy and here's what they're saying is he going to play? Is he not going to play? And it's always a guessing game because you're never sure about the, the injury reports. Uh, but it gives you a, a little understanding of what the guy's capable of doing and how, how they're going I to I think perform. there's more, more, more there. Like a lot of times, you know, a guy's there, but, you know, you know going in that they're more of a decoy. decoy. Sure. Or, you know, in the famous example, Julio Jones and that Super Bowl against the Patriots, half his route tree was gone because he couldn't one plan and cut, yeah, right? And you right. can shield, uh, uh, you know, stay to one side or, or play play off center, et cetera, and, and, and uh, favorite one side or the no other. Question. Anyways, all right, Coach, thank okay. you. Appreciate it. It's awesome. All right, thank you. All right, we'll be back for part two of the Pro Football Doc podcast, and thanks to Coach Turner. All right. Welcome back to part two of the Pro Football Doc podcast. Thanks for Coach Norv Turner for coming in in studio guest here. Part two, we'll go over some fun things and have some fun there. Hopefully you all got a glimpse of Coach's personality. I promise you, different guy in the locker room, different guy in team meetings than what the media saw of him. As you can see, he didn't care. He said it was about the locker room and he wasn't trying to win any points uh, outside of it. And that's the most often answered question or asked question I get from uh, fans in San Diego about Coach Turner. Um, let's talk for a second about why I love Twitter and why I hate Twitter. There's a lot of times I've mentioned I hate Twitter because I don't know, it's, it's sort of like social media Yelp, right? People like I'll say something and about let's say COVID and half the audience will say, why are we worried about it? You know, athletes don't get sick from it. And then the other half will say, you know, half a million people died and it's horrible and I can't play, believe we played sports. But there are some good things from uh, Twitter that come of it here. And uh, we'll uh, go over it a little bit here. So uh, one thing on Twitter this week here, uh, Odell Beckham, who I've talked about doing very well, lots of reports he's doing very well. And here we are, Mary Kay Cabot says he's on the bike brigade. And all I said was, you know, I hope expect he'll be ready for the starter training camp. He's been doing well and his videos show great progress, good reports, but clearly it's a fallacy. He's not a hundred percent, right? I mean, I'm just stating fact there. And, uh, you know, this is one of the reasons I love 
Twitter. I got a nice DM from uh, from OBJ saying, yeah, that he, you know, uh, he's going to do this the right way. And it's only seven months. And uh, he actually wanted to practice, but the team said no, and he wants to do things the right way. So look, I think Odell's doing great. Uh, I think he's going to do well this season. He's on track. But here, that's what I love about Twitter. I've never really met the man. I, I think I went to one Super Bowl function that he was at, but he wouldn't remember. But you're able to establish and connect this way. And that's one of the things I do like about Twitter, uh, even though it has become divisive. Uh, what else do we like about Twitter? Uh, sometimes there's some fun content out here. Uh, uh, those last couple of days, look, uh, even though it's a dead period for football, a lot of uh, Tom Brady content out here. You had uh, Julian Edelman, his own teammate, giving him grief. Uh, QB number 12, he brought out the, the, uh, the uh, rankings from a video game back in the day that he didn't even have a name. He was just QB number 12. And now, of course, he's TB12 saying he's come a long way. And I think that was pretty fun. And that brought out some other fun involving Tom Brady that I think was funny. I don't know if you guys seen this one coming from Eli here. Here goes the zinger. Well, I'm playing the wrong segment here, but uh, in the interest of time, he's talking about uh, Tom Brady and his favorite type of wine, and, and Eli Manning says that he can't beat the New York Jets. So I think that's funny and all in good humor. But uh, here's another one involving Tom Brady. And I say this in fun. I have the ultimate respect for the GOAT. Only good from Chris Sims, a fellow quarterback. The only good thing about Nick Foles joining the Bucs is that Tom Brady might finally shake his hand. <laughs> Interesting. But let me tell you, Tom's not beyond doing his own zingers, and so more power to Tom. Love him. Check this one out. The teams, they weren't interested at the very end. I was thinking, you're sticking with that. So, yeah, he said it. One of the teams that weren't interested at the very end, you're sticking with that mother blanker. Uh, so Tom can take it and Tom can dish it out. And I think all that's in good fun, at least on uh, Twitter. Don't hate me. Uh, I, I like Tom Brady. Um, I just think that uh, anything he does and some of this stuff is really uh, quite uh, uh, news, uh, newsworthy, uh, uh, et cetera. Um, let's talk seriously for a second about uh, COVID and what's happening across the NFL. Uh, you know, all these new COVID rules differentiating fully vaccinated individuals and unvaccinated, daily testing for unvaccinated, no in-person meetings, masks, et cetera. Look, there is a tremendous competitive advantage to taking the COVID vaccine at this point in time. And I'm not arguing whether a player needs it or doesn't need it and young, healthy, this, that, the other. I took the vaccine, I'm in healthcare. Um, I'm not trying to argue that. I'm just saying that you, there's gonna be a lot of peer pressure to take it for the team. This is despite the Cole Beasley's, you know, uh, you know, 
saying he doesn't want to, and that's his right. But in the end, I think this is what's going to happen. And Albert Breer talked about it. Player rate went from 30% to 55% fast. There are two, I think, three teams that are at 85%. What I believe is and will happen is the Cole Beasleys of the world and others will continue to exercise their right to not take the vaccine. But what's going to happen is there's a lot of others that are on the fence. And if you don't have a mandatory sit-out period, in other words, you can play in that game on Sunday if you took the vaccine, that's compelling. If you can walk around the facility and meet, gather with teammates, eat, meet, et cetera, that's compelling. And guess what? They just had mini camps in person. And it's very clear who took the vaccine and who didn't. The guys walking around in masks either have not taken the vaccine because they're required to wear the masks or they just like the wearing the masks. So we know, players know in a locker room who took the vaccine and who didn't. And I think team leaders are going to say, guys, look, you may not believe in it, but I get it. You may have some worries, but this is what's best for us to win. And it's the same message last year. If you follow the rules and don't go out, this is what's best for us to win. So I think the vast majority of teams are going to come in that 85% threshold. And that still means that there's plenty of room for individuals like Cole Beasley to uh, be able to do what he wants to do. Um, let's move on to the next topic here. Uh, on the next topic before we get there, let's talk about this. This morning, unanimous opinion, 9-0 Supreme Court, basically hammering the NC2A, saying that they don't, and they shouldn't be able to, as a monopoly, control the benefits that athletes get. Not only does that bring in name, image, likeness, the size of your dorm room, if you get a car, potentially, payments for jobs and sponsorships, this is going to be interesting. I think this may change the way football business and a lot of sports business is done. We'll have to see the fallout from this, but this Supreme Court ruling, honestly, for college sports is bigger, in my opinion, than PASPA, where gambling was legalized. This is big for college sports and the structure and everything else that, that is up there. All right, let's move on and let's talk some MBA. We're into the uh, Eastern and Western Conference Finals now. And uh, so what's happening here? Still lots of actionable injury information. Uh, we talked about the Bucks indeed won over the Brooklyn Nets. They were plus money to minus 184 on injury news. In the end, it took seven games that they prevailed based on James Harden not being 100% and uh, based on Kyrie Irving not returning to play. So what's next in basketball? Well, the uh, Western Conference Finals just started without Chris Paul, without Kawhi Leonard. And I've written and talked about how, based on protocols, I can't be sure when, but Chris Paul will return sooner than Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard has this ACL injury. However, he's seen here in a video at game seven without a knee sleeve or a knee brace on, which leads me to believe he has a bone bruise and a partial ACL tear. 
That's why he hasn't been ruled out. I don't think it's unfathomable that he returns, but I think Chris Paul is back this week and Kawhi Leonard at best case is back next week or more towards the NBA finals if the Clippers can get there. So that's just some information for you guys and make your decisions on uh, who you think is going to win or not win. Joel Embiid, great job. Played very well throughout the series. Maybe not his best defense, but put up a lot of points. But I fully expect him now to have a knee scope. Uh, worst case, just to look at that small tear. Best case, to trim it and to keep it small. But uh, fully expect Joel Embiid to have a knee scope there. And uh, finally, on the uh, basketball side, uh, we talked about um, – you know, LeBron James and the fatigue of the season. Look, LeBron James, hats off to him. He's been one of the healthier guys around, and he's played more games the last decade than anybody. Yes, there's been a lot of injuries in the playoffs, but the total number isn't higher. It's just been on the stars. I think it's too easy to say it was just fatigue that caused all of this stuff. Certainly Kyrie's ankle sprain wasn't fatigued. He landed on Giannis's ankle. Uh, something for the NBA to look at, but statistically, I'm not sure that it holds uh, water there. All right, so let's move on to a little bit of uh, baseball conversation here. Um, some really sad news. I'm going to address it briefly, but I don't want to get into it too much. Uh, the reason why uh, is uh the George Mason baseball player died after Tommy John surgery. Certainly a very sad state of affairs. The reason why I don't want to talk about it too much is out of respect for the player and his family, the fact that we don't have a lot of details and I don't want to speculate, but also he wasn't a high profile college guy. He didn't put himself out there. So I think he deserves some privacy. The rumors that are out there say maybe it was from a blood clot. Look, bottom line is, the reminder is, surgery is, without, not, with, is not without risks. Whether it's anesthesia risk or potential blood clot risks, be careful with it. Godspeed with it all. And uh, I feel bad for this uh, kid and his, especially his family, right? Uh, a Tommy John surgery is not supposed to end that way at all whether it was a blood clot or not. And blood clots aren't even that common in the upper extremity. They exist, uh, certainly an unusual set of circumstances. All I offer are prayers and thoughts to his family. And for that reason, don't get mad, but I'm trying to leave that alone. Uh, going to more baseball things and baseball topics, let's talk a little more about uh, Tyler Glass now. The crackdown on foreign substances, uh, the crackdown on spider tack and, and uh, everything else. Uh, he says all he used before was sunscreen, but that now since, since there's a strict ban, that that's maybe how he had to grip the ball harder and he hurt his UCL. Is that correct? I don't know. Does he have to grip the ball differently? Probably, and he would know best. Can subtle changes cause downstream other injuries? Yes, we've seen that before, especially with all the torque and the way pitchers throw. I don't know how he changes grip or his motion. 
Is it feasible that it had something to do with it? It's possible, but I can't say for sure. But here's what I want to point out. I can't think of another incidence, another example of a major sport making a fundamental change in the rules all of a sudden. Like in football, they change rules all the time. Okay, head up and you can't do X, Y, and Z, and blind, blindside blocks, and you know uh, the runner can't use the helmet as a weapon. But they enact it in the preseason, let people see it, and even then there's some acclimation to it. This was enacted overnight, or at least when they ruled on it. Well, you could say it was enacted before and decided to be enforced overnight without any warnings or anything else. And that's just interesting to me. I wonder if the, the listeners and viewers here have any other example. Christian, a podcast producer here, I don't know if you have any other examples. I can't think of another equivalent example on the top of my head. I know you used to play baseball, Christian, that you changed it mid-season. You didn't even change it at the All-Star break. You didn't say after the All-Star break is a strict crackdown. Right now is a soft roll-in crackdown. You just said, this is it. And literally, it's like the highway patrol saying you go 65 and a half miles an hour on the highway, you're getting a ticket. There's no roll-in period of it whatsoever. And I could see how that could throw pitchers for a loop and change things. Does it going to change? Is it going to change the spin rate that much? I don't know. I haven't studied it. But I do think that the way that it's enacted is different. And I can see why Tyler Glass now has, has these complaints. But a fundamental enforcement of the rule change like this overnight in a major sport, I think is relatively unprecedented. Doc, I'd be willing to jump in and say to the audience out there that uh, you will see a certain group of pitchers numbers all of a sudden drop off catastrophically. Um, and you could probably take some good overs on a couple of games because hitters will definitely <laughs> be having some good days. No question. And, you know, if you want to do the research, since this, uh, it's look at spin rates of, of pitchers who have done better this year and had higher spin rates than in past years and short those players and those teams, right? Now, the, the marketplace might already be doing that. But, yeah, and, and this is a mid-season change. I mean, there's a reason why it's difficult. I'm not picking on him. But you can't just change Tim Tebow's throwing motion in the middle of a season. You can't change Philip Rivers. He's had success with it. That's what, It's hard to, to make a fundamental change like this, especially in season without lead-up time or warning. And I get it. Baseball says this was always the rules. We're just enforcing it. But, you know, when you let everyone go 75 on the highway to all of a sudden ticket everyone who's going 65 and a half miles an hour, that's a sea change. That's all I'm saying, Christian. Like, I don't remember the equivalent, the equivalent of a rule change being this significant for baseball, football, or really any sport mid-season like this. That's, that's my point is all. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Don't think that this has happened uh, in sports history, at least in the modern era. Yeah. Um, so on to some baseball and uh, what happened here. And uh, then we'll, uh, wrap things up here uh tatis our guy in san diego 
Camarena in his major league debut. Fourth time now this season. Diving on his left shoulder. Here's the close-up. Boom! That little subluxation with the outstretched arm. Sure. I think you're right. Yeah, there it is. That's just not good. So this is now the fourth time this season, counting preseason two, fourth incident for Tatis. He's doing extremely well. He's leading the majors in homers. He's playing well. He's come back through this. Uh, now he's going to be back again for the fourth time. I'm not saying the Padres are wrong. I'm saying that the Padres are pot committed. And because if he has surgery, he's done for the season and ready for next season, whether that's now or a month from now or two months from now. They're in a winning campaign as long as the Padres are in it. I see why they're doing this, but there's going to be a fifth. That's all I'm saying. This fourth one seemed to be minor. Good. There's going to be a fifth until he has surgery. And surgery is a matter of when, not if, what we've talked about before. This video fits the same pattern. Seems like this time wasn't as bad, which is good, known because he's not even hitting the injured list for 10 days, just a couple games off and back in. But unfortunately, there's going to be a fifth and maybe six time. And hopefully there won't be further damage. I'm sure the Padres are following it. And uh, that's the story for baseball and Tatis. And one final fun video that we'll end on. Uh, I just don't remember ever seeing this, so I wanted to share this with everybody. Let's analyze this fun video and see if you can tell me what happened here. Here's Machado. You guys see that? He's running well. No, he's not injured. He slides in the second, barely beats the tag. But he's blowing, blowing gum mid-stride, mid. I mean, I mean, I've never, Christian, maybe you've seen it before. I haven't seen that before. Look, uh, Little League 8U Pinto Machine Pitch Baseball, I'm trying to tell my son, don't chew gum, you know, no sunflower seeds, pay attention. That multitasking is next level, uh, what do you think about that, Christian? I've never seen I can, that. I can jump in with one other example that I've seen before, and that was, I want to, oof, the year is escaping me, but Joe Maurer was in the All-Star game, I want to say this was like 08, 09, and he got caught in a rundown between second and third um, and blew a bubble multiple times while going back and forth. Um, and they asked him when, cause you know, the all-star game, everyone's talking to the media, the whole game and whatnot. They asked him, Hey, did you know that you were blowing the bubbles? He goes, no, I wasn't. And they played him back the video and he goes, well, that's that I've, he goes, I've chewed gum playing baseball my whole life. So that just happened. Um, but yeah, that's a pretty amazing thing to have uh, Machado doing that. Well, you're running, you're breathing hard and, and, uh, you know, I get it. These guys are professionals. They do in their sleep, but that wasn't like a stand up double. Right. I mean, he had to hustle to get there. And as he turned on the juices, he blew the bubble and uh, what happened. It, it, so. it, it is confusing given how everyone kind of has a, a context that Machado doesn't hustle that he would then leg out a double while also blowing a ball. It, it just, it, it's very out of place. Uh, I just thought it was a, a, a fun piece and he was safe. So it's all good. No, no, 
no harm done, but uh, I'm going to try not to show that video to my son because yeah, the, ne the next that. evolution is him uh, spitting seeds while doing it because that's a little <laughs> bit more finite muscle skills. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just thought that was very impressive. Uh, I saw that and went, what? What is going on here? He's blowing a bubble. But in, in this is a game. I mean, Mauer at least was an all star game, right? I mean, more. Uh, it just seems like a choking hazard to me. It just wow. seems dangerous. It seems if you're worth, if you're making 300 something million dollars, that uh, the team would keep gum out of your mouth while you're running. I don't, let's not get too dramatic, right? I mean, he's not going to choke and die from the gum. I mean, you, I mean, my, my four-year-old swallows gum all the time and, and we tell her not to, but, but she survived. So I'm not worried about that. I just, I just thought it was interesting. I mean, look, I'm going to have to try it. I mean, I don't think I could, I mean, look, it's a joke walking chew gum. I mean, run and chew gum and, and blow a bubble. That might be hard. I'm not sure I could do that. Maybe, maybe on the practice field, uh, when my son's not looking today, I'll try that. Uh, of course, I'll run like at one tenth speed of Machado. Uh, Christian, we actually did the, a father-son uh, uh, baseball game yesterday to wind up practice a scrimmage for our little eight U uh, All Stars for Pinto, and uh, it was fun. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the 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 highlighter low light was. Uh, one dad grounding out to so we had the dads play the same positions their son play right and so uh, one dad granted out to a shortstop son and then another dad we made nameless collided on the base pass with his son and knocked him down and scraped his chin that's going to be a tough conversation for mom later on <laughs> but we had fun it was it was good time it was a good father's day you guys win uh, of course, we're not keeping score, right? It's yeah, okay, a you kinder, it. gentler thing. Um, one dad was really into it. He hit a home run. I was like, dude, you need a bat left-handed. I, 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 you know, I, it's machine pitch, right? And you're using their tiny little bats. I hit a ball into, you know, one hopper in the left field first time up. And the next two times I got up, I actually hit left-handed. I mean, uh, I got two grounders hitting left-handed. I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not a baseball guy, Christian. I just was like, they're eight. Come on, let's have some fun. You know, <laughs> it's okay. Uh, and uh, we had some fun. And then I think we rigged it that they would, they won in the end, but it was all good. All good. All right. Thanks for listening and watching Pro Football Doc Podcast. Thanks to Norv Turner. It's always fun to talk about some stories and then talk about some other sports here on Pro Football Doc Podcast. We're hot and heavy planning for this coming football season. Lots of new things going on. Excited to bring that into play with everybody. So keep watching, subscribe at YouTube, and uh, we'll see you again next week on the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu slash visit.